What was the first shit that you eliminated? Literally just saying no to the request for my time. Like what kind of shit? Do you think you can meet me for lunch? I want to talk to you about a business idea that I have uh, in the beverage space. I know that you had your coconut water. I want, I want to talk to you about that. Um, no, I'm going for a run. <clears throat> I don't want any money. I just want to talk to you for 15 minutes. A friend of mine, no. You think on Friday night you can come down for 15 and see this? No. Because it's cumulative. Right. No. No. It's going to be one person every day or so with some new request. So that was the first shift. And I put myself first. And a lot of times I, I don't, but in certain times I did. sudden you know there wasn't any planning involved the night before he just came and said to me oh he called me and he said are you free tomorrow and I said yeah he said I'm gonna pull up on you and I said okay pull up on me what time are you free he asked I said you can come anytime after two. The good brother ended up coming an hour before two. And he came to my house. We sat, we talked. We watched battle rap and comedy specials. And then we went to one of my favorite restaurants in the city. It's an Italian restaurant. I swear to God, I bring everybody to this restaurant. It's one of the best restaurants in the city. And it's one of the best Italian restaurants that I've ever eaten at. Period. I love the aesthetic. I love the decor. I love the architecture. And the booth that the restaurant sits us in is my usual booth. So, you know, uh, the waitress greets me when I enter. Brings me to my usual booth. The, you know, the funny thing about the place that I live in, though, really quickly, is you don't see a lot of black faces. Not a lot of black faces around the city. If you do see black faces, it's far and few between. And if you do see them, they're not really out enjoying the city like that. I'm not going to say that the place that I live is racist by any stretch of the imagination, but... I will say it's missing a certain je ne sais quoi. The certain, uh, the element that, that blackness brings to a city it doesn't have. I don't complain about it either, by the way. I stay out of my way. I stay in my, in my mode, in my zone. And the only time I tend to go out is when people want to be shown around the city, appreciate the, the beautiful landscape that the city has to offer. I mean, this city is incredibly beautiful, stunning. I love it here. I might love it a little too much. You know, my brother mentioned when we we're walking up the street to go to my favorite restaurant up here, Paisano's. 
He mentioned, did you see that, that dude who was sitting down outside? We walked by this bar and he said, that dude was just looking us up and down. Up and down. And I paid it no mind. Just moved straight through. I said, don't worry about it. It's okay, don't worry about it. it happens all the time. And so we enter into Paisanos once again. You know, I say hi to the staff. The staff brings me to my usual booth. And me and my brother are enjoying our dinner. I mean, quick service. They're on top of everything. On top of everything, you know. We we order our food. They're moving our, our plates around. Next meals, next meals, a three-course meal. And then the funniest thing happened. Funniest thing. This elderly couple. This elderly couple sits right next to us. Or rather, this elderly couple is seated right next to us. And so the booths at Paisano's are kind of like if you ever been to a Korean barbecue spot, right? Like it's one elongated booth. The booths aren't really separated much, right? So if you're, let's say if you're in a booth and your back is facing the door, there's a long line of booths and there's tables. So you're sharing a booth with multiple people, right? There's, they're not isolated booths. You're sharing these booths, but the table adjacent from you is a solitary table, right? I'm on the booth end. So the tables are like probably four feet apart, I would say, three to four feet apart. And so this elderly couple is being prepared to be sat right next to me and my brother. And the funniest thing happens. Funniest thing happens. Out the corner of my eye, I'm not even looking at them. But out the corner of my eye, I see the man look around the restaurant. Right. I see the wife look around the restaurant. The man points to the corner. And the wife is like, yeah. And so they, you know, choose to relocate to the corner. They don't even ask the waitress if it's okay. They just go and relocate to the corner. Elderly white couple, by the way. I don't need to, I didn't think I needed to explain that part. Elderly white couple. And so, my brother, because we were in the middle of a story, we were, we were laughing about something as this is going on, but ladies and gentlemen, if there's one thing that I can bestow upon you, you always have to be mindful of your surroundings. I tell all my people, never stare, but always be aware. Because the moment you stare, you're an accomplice. This goes from past experience. Let's say you're walking in a Target, right? And you hear a ruckus. You hear somebody go, don't you, hey, give me that. Stop, stop, stop that man. You keep about your business. You keep about your business. Because the moment you stop and turn to look, you're a part of whatever energy is unfolding around you. Stay on your business until that business enters you, but you always remain aware. Always remain aware. So these are things that me and my brother practice. We're always aware. We never make something our business, but we're always aware. And so we both were aware of what transpired next to us, even though we were in the middle of the conversation that we were having, enjoying it, being present. And so we see this, or right? we see these, these two elderly, and they look like sweet, sweet people. Honestly, they look like sweet people. And 
And me and my brother start laughing. We start laughing. And my brother posed the question. Could that be considered a racist encounter? Could it be considered a racist encounter? And I had to think about that for a little bit, right? Like, because let's say, let's say I were to play devil's advocate and say, maybe they were just uncomfortable by being this close to strangers. It's very plausible. Very plausible, especially in the middle of COVID. Very plausible. But taking our minds down that road for a little bit of if it was a racist encounter, why would it be one? Because we're black, we're young. And then I said to myself, and I said this to my brother too, I remember a time when the George Floyd situations were happening. And one of the students that I was working with at the time came and asked me, what do they do? when they feel like they're being treated and stared at and wronged due to the color of their skin, what do they do? Because a young boy at the time, he was getting all these stares, lived in a predominantly white area, getting all these stares. And he said, what do I do? I'm not comfortable. Do they know that they're staring at me like this? And I told him what I told my brother at that table. If you saw God for the first time, what would you do? Would you stare at him? Would you run away from him? Would you take a picture with them? Would you want to have a conversation? And I'm not saying something as uh, careless as the black man is God. No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. But I will say that we all possess God within us. I saw God in that elderly couple. Which is why I don't, I didn't look at it as a racist encounter. I looked at it as a human encounter. The fallacy of being a human being is believing that there needs to be boundaries between us. It's something as simple as a restaurant. Regardless of where you come from, there needs to be boundaries. That's the question. How many boundaries are too many boundaries? What is the proper boundary between yourself and a stranger? But where are my manners? Where are my manners? Welcome. You were life in the human form, the universe becoming conscious of itself. My name is Rais Taluka. How are you guys doing? I hope you guys are well. It's been a great week. I have some great things to talk about today. Maybe you'll find value in them. Actually, I hope you'll find value in them by the end of this podcast. Um, where do we begin? Where do we begin? Firstly, how are you guys doing? Let me not be rude. How are you guys doing? How has your week been? I hope it's been everything you've asked for, everything you've desired. 
On a scale of one to five, one being god awful, five being incredible. How would you define your week? What number would you attribute to the week that has passed? So with that number in mind, if it's a one, God willing, we're going to get it to a two. If it's a two, God willing, we're going to get it to a three. If it's a three, we're going to get it to a four. And if it's a four, we're going to get it to a five. And it's a five. Hopefully we break the scale and get it beyond. Let's start with some highs and lows. For the high, for me this week, I would say that I got two new plants. I've never been a plant owner, so it's going to be fun trying to take care of these plants. I have a elephant succulent and a mini banana succulent. Those are the two plants I have, so I'm trying to give them as much love and TLC as I can. And if I fail, I fail, but that's the uh, that's the goal, I would say. And for a low, for the low, I, I think for me, my low this week actually took place yesterday. I was in a meeting and in the meeting, I'm discussing this very confidential project that I'm working on. And in the midst of me talking about this project, um, one of my team members comes to me and says, I think I'm going to have to uh, drop out of the project. Opens up the project like this, the meeting like this. And this is one of my favorite people. One of my favorite people says this. She's a Buddhist. And I'm saying, damn, she's going to drop out of the project. And the reason why this is a low to me is because I I started to wonder, what are the signs? Did I miss the signs of her her, uh, disengagement? Did I miss the signs of her emotional instability? Was, Was I not? And... Maybe it's not my entire responsibility to be this for everybody. But did I miss being a shoulder? Did I miss being a teammate? Did I miss being a leader? Was I so what was I blinded by in that moment that I was not able to detect? Oh, she's waning away and then in hindsight I was able to pick up like oh wow she was a little bit more distant from the process oh she did say early on six months ago her personal problems oh I thought she had those under control damn could I have been a better ally oh then I start thinking but I I thought Because she was a Buddhist, she'd be fine. Because I'm fine because I'm a Buddhist. So then I start to think, oh, wow, not everybody's relationship with their practice is like mine. Ah, damn. Damn. And so I've just been ruminating on that idea over the past 24 hours. Really bummed me. Really, really bummed me. Really bummed me out, man. So that those are my highs and lows. Those are my highs and lows. I want to make some corrections from the last podcast. I said William Gibson's book that came out in 1985 was called Necromancer. I want to make a correction and it was 1984 and the book is called Neuro Mancer. Neuromancer, not Necromancer. Necromancer is something completely different. Neuromancer is the cyberpunk novel created by uh, William Gibson that pretty much 
pretty much set off the idea of cyberspace and created a whole genre in science fiction at large. Um, so I just want to uh, give a little bit of forethought to that. Should I go down? The, because prior to William Gibson, the reason why he's so important inside of both science fiction and thinking about technology at large is because prior to Gibson, um, science fiction was only thought, was primarily thought, I should say, in regards to space travel and, you know, aliens. What Gibson did was he popularized science fiction in the vein of technology and the relationship with technology and the internet. And he made that a more prescient to a wide audience. So I think that was a, but that's my bad for getting the date wrong. It wasn't 1985, it was 1984. And the title is Neuromancer, not Necromancer. So forgive me. Secondly, second, you know, restatement. Big Sean is not trash. Everybody put your guns away. Big Sean isn't trash. Okay. I didn't mean that he was trash. What I meant was there are tears in hip hop. There are tears in hip hop. And the reason why Big Sean is not in tier A is because he struggles to make good songs. Drake, J. Cole, and Kendrick are in tier A. Meek, Travis, and Wale. No, I can't say that because Wale sold 30K with his last album. So I would say Meek, Big Sean, damn. Hold on, let me write this down. Let me write this down because I don't want to do you guys a disservice. I love talking about hip hop. I was telling my brother. I was telling my brother. See, it's imperative for everybody in their lives to figure out their domain of competence. Like figure out the things that you love to talk about, that you love in general, and do not stray. Do not stray. Figure out your five things that you love. Simplify your life, condense it down, and then your brain will automatically filter out the useless information. We've evolved to categorize things that are helpful to us in our minds and just dump things that are unhelpful to us. Tier, tier A, let me write this down. Tier A in hip hop is obviously Drake, Kendrick. And J. Cole. Legend status, you know, is the Kanye. They're, they're, they're tier S. Regardless of if they sell 600K, 300K, 144K, I think that's what 444 sold last time J dropped. Regardless, those are, they're grandfathered in, right? If Jada Kiss releases an album, He's he's out of here, right? If Method Man releases an album, I'm not counting him along with everybody else. 50 Cent releases an album, I'm not counting him with everybody else. I'm talking about active participants, people who we have grown up with, not who were grown when we arrived to hip hop. Um, so tier A, Drake, Kendrick, J. Cole. Tier B. There might be some debate about tier B, but I have right now, Travis Scott, Lil Uzi Vert. Yes, Lil Uzi Vert is tier B. He is tier B right now. Yes. Um, his last album sold about 300K first week. He is tier B, ladies and gentlemen. Ain't no way around it. Um, Travis Scott. Lil Uzi Vert, and who would I say is in tier B? Ah, Le Petit Bebe, Lil Baby. 
So, so far we have Tier A, Drake, Kendrick, J. Cole. Tier B, Travis Scott, Lil Uzi Vert, Lil Baby. Tier C. Here's where it gets tricky. Here's where it gets tricky. Because now we're going to get into some, you know, some uncomfortable truths in reality. And by the way, I'm organizing this tier system based upon um, songs, sales, and impact. Song, sales, impact. Tier C. Da Baby. Meek Mill. Big Sean. Right? I'm not going to keep on going down my list, but you see where I'm going. Right? You see where I'm going. Tier A is Drake, Kendrick, J. Cole. Tier B, Travis Scott, Lil Uzi Vert, Lil Baby. Tier C, The Baby, Meek Mill, Big Sean. Right? And Big Sean might even be in tier D if I'm keeping it a buck. The only reason why Big Sean is relevant is because he's a legacy act almost. He's getting to legacy act status. He's not like Snoop or Jay-Z or Kanye West, but he's getting there. But tier A, without a doubt, is the big three. Drake, Kendrick, J. Cole. They're like Naruto, Bleach, and One Piece. All right. And everybody else is, you know, miscellaneous anime. You know, Toriko and, you know, Rave Master and stuff like that. Um, that's for my nerds in the back. So where am I? So yeah, let me just correct that. Let me be more specific. What Big Sean is, is not trash. He is just distinctly different from Drake, Kendrick, and J. Cole. And I believe Kanye West in that interview in Drink Champs is only addressing that he is not those three. And the reason why he's not those three is obvious to me because what Ye wanted, like all of these three have, is a heir apparent. See, when Lil Wayne signed Drake, it was pretty much like this guy that I'm signing could possibly take my position as the breadwinner in this company. When Interscope got Kendrick and Dr. Dre got Kendrick. It was this guy is the heir apparent to my legacy. When we talk about Dr. Dre's legacy, we're talking about Tupac. We're talking about Eminem. We're talking about Snoop Dogg. We're talking about 50 Cent and we're talking about Kendrick Lamar. That's Dr. Dre. That's his tree. Now, we're talking about J. Cole. We're talking about Jay-Z. And do I have to say everything that fell off of Jay-Z's tree? So what Kanye is saying is he expected Big Sean to be like those three. Because I picked Big Sean to be the heir apparent to Ye. That's all I'm saying. And that's all Ye is saying. Um, I want to address some of my comments also on the last episode of the pod. Speaking of big threes and hip hop, I look at Elon Musk. Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg as the big three. The reason I look at them as the big three in this regard is because they are pushing the envelope in how we are interfacing with three-dimensional reality. I'm going to say that again. They are pushing the envelope in how we interface with three-dimensional reality. 
I love hip hop. I love it. But hip hop has the unfortunate ability to stunt our ambition. Because what it tends to do is create a uncomfortable blending between entertainment and lifestyle that I believe does a bigger disservice to who we think we can be. So what we end up doing when we look at the Jay-Z's, the 50s, the E-40s, we think that what we are here to do is extend our wealth and maintain our likenesses. And not only maintain our likenesses, but reap the monetary compensation that comes with our likeness. So it alludes to the conversation that I had with you guys two episodes ago about brand versus infrastructure. Hip hop has trained us to think of success as those with the most successful brands. Meaning, yes, Jay-Z can take his likeness and slap it onto a cannabis company and then the cannabis company does well. Diddy can take his likeness and slap it onto a vodka company and then Ciroc does well and then we associate Ciroc with Diddy but then there's another tier there's another tier that the big three operate on that is about infrastructure and not only is it about infrastructure it is about redefining the way that they interface with three-dimensional reality. All three of them, Mark, Jeff, and Elon, are trying to change the way they and the people after them remember them and remember living here. It's different. It's different. And I don't know why it's so different, but it's different. Jay-Z raps about being a billionaire. Understandable. It's cool. Kanye West bloviates about him being a billionaire. Understandable. It's cool. Those other three don't bloviate about them being billionaires. Why? Why? What, what, what is it? But I do want everybody to know and understand that there's a saying that goes in the middle of a gold rush, you do not want to be digging in the dirt. You want to be providing the shovels. I'm going to say that again. In the middle of a gold rush, you do not want to be digging in the dirt. You want to be providing the shovels. That's how you reap monetary success that is going to allow you the longevity that you desire. It's not by toiling in the mud, in the muck, if you see everybody moving towards one way of living, one way of existence, look at it from a bird's eye view and tell yourself, what is making people move this way? How do I participate in this in a way that I am not in there, but I am of there? So, for example, 
we live in a very content heavy space right now. Very content heavy. Very content heavy. Everybody has a production company. Everybody wants to produce content. You know, these calls for representation are happening left and right, to and fro, asking, we need more people who look like us to do these things, you know. And I'm giving free game right here. So do not shoot the messenger. This is free game. Hard game, but free. So you say, okay, you and your friends, you guys say, yo, let's come together and let's start a production company. Let's get, let's throw our hats in the ring and compete. Let's not just compete. Let's accept that the market is determining that there is a need for our voices. So you start your production company. It's called Black Star Productions. And at Black Star Productions, you're going to tell stories that are based off of short stories from the Harlem Renaissance. And that is what you're going to tell at Black Star Productions. That is your business plan. And so you take this, you, you write this down. The goal of Black Star Productions is to tell undocumented stories from the Harlem Renaissance, giving a new light to the black experience for today and tomorrow. That is your, that is your statement of purpose for Black Star Productions. You take this idea, you go to a financer, they give you money to start Black Star Productions. Here you go. A million dollars. You go Black Star Productions. You go be great. Get that first million. You shoot your first short film based upon. Um, so you take a Langston Hughes poem. And you make it into a story. And you complete a dream deferred. Now you have to go find distribution. Before you go find distribution, traditionally, you put it on YouTube. It goes on YouTube. You promote it across all of your socials. Instagram, Twitter. It goes a little viral. It goes a little viral. You say, oh, wow. We might have something here. A dream deferred is going viral. Ava DuVernay is reposting it and Daniel Kaluuya and Damson and all these people are, but Michael B. Jordan is reposting it. And then here comes Lionsgate. They come to you and they say, we would like to make a deal with you, a distro deal to take a dream deferred and put it in cinemas, put it in Amazon, put it on Netflix, put it on HBO. Are you down? You and team say, yeah, thank you. We were waiting for this moment. Put a dream deferred on Netflix. Put it on Amazon Prime. Put it on Hulu. Put it in the theaters for a limited run. It's a 30-minute movie. You know how many people can see a dream deferred in a day? Just because it's 30 minutes, if it's in a theater, so many people will see my movie. Yes. What are the numbers looking like, though? Whatever you want. You can have whatever you want. Really? Whatever I want? Yes, whatever you want. I want 50 million. Is that okay? Sure. You can have 50 million. 50 million for my film? Absolutely. 50 million for your film. Just let us distribute it. You won't get any money off of royalties. And then we own the movie outright. But you can have $50 million. Really? Yes. Really? Okay. So Lionsgate takes a dream deferred. They put it up everywhere. Netflix. Hulu. Amazon. 
It's everywhere. You're getting kind of popular. People are like, yo, this filmmaker is talented. This production company is the new A24. We have to look out for this creator. And you have $50 million in the bank account. So your initial loan that you asked for with your partner of a million, you've made it a couple times over. Chilling. You're chilling. You pay staff, you pay crew, you 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 buy your mom what your mom needs, you, you get all these things, and you start creating the next thing. Right? You prepare yourself to create the next thing. But the world isn't done with a dream deferred. Not yet. So you take a dream deferred. The production company, Lionsgate, they bring it to the Oscars. They say this film deserves Oscar attention. It deserves to be noticed for best short film. So they run a whole entire campaign to get you recognized for best short film. And then not only that, they say, yo, we want to ink a production deal with Black Star Productions. Do you mind? But what do those figures look like? How, what, what would you like? Can I have another 50 million? Sure. You could have another 50 million. Black Star Productions, you guys are doing so well. So you create exclusively for Lionsgate. Black Star Productions, we're leasing out your skill set, Black Star. So everybody's like, yeah. Yippee. We got another production deal. We got 50 million. We're in the positive. We have a hundred million dollars off two deals. Come February, a dream deferred wins the best short film Oscar. You are now an Oscar winning director, an Oscar winning production company. Yeah, the W's, they're flowing. They're flowing. So then you do it again. You say, you know, it's time for us to make a feature. You make a feature film. You make a feature film. And in this feature film, you decide to call it Race is an Avalanche. Or even better, The Negro and the Racial Mountain. That is your feature. Lionsgate goes, uh, I don't know. Are you sure you want to call it the Negro and the Racial Mountain? You and your team at Blackstar are like, yeah, I do. I want to call it the Negro and the Racial Mountain. Lionsgate goes, I don't know, chief. I don't think that's going to work too well. But you, you tell them like, no, 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 this is going to work. And they come to you and make a suggestion. How about you change the title? How about you call it the mountain? And you say, okay, but can you hear what the film is about first? And they say, okay, tell me what the film was about. Well, the film is about how black creatives are always fighting against the stigma of being perceived as black. And sometimes we just want to be considered creatives. I don't want to fight against the stigma of being a black writer. I just want to be viewed as a writer. Can I have both? And so the story is going to follow this one 
black writer. And as he's trying to fight against what he calls the mountain, the perception of whiteness, how no matter how much we are telling stories about blackness, it must go through the acceptance of white people. And that's the story. He has to learn that lesson. Then Lionsgate goes, ah, I don't know if we're going to be able to distribute that movie. I mean, that subject matter, you think people want to, yes, I'm positive. I'm positive. So, you... Lionsgate ends up signing off on the movie. You shoot the movie. You get everybody in it. Lionsgate is able to get everybody in it. Everybody you want. You say, I want Michael B. Jordan to play the lead. They get Michael B. Jordan to play the lead. You say, I want uh, Tessa Thompson to play the love interest. You, they get Tessa Thompson to play the love interest. You say, I want his son to be uh, Damson Idris. You get Damson Idris to, to play his son. You get the, the, the dream cast you want. You guys finish shooting. The movie's out. Distribution time. Lionsgate says, you can't put it on YouTube. You can't put it on YouTube. No, no. You say, what, what? Lionsgate says, no, can't put it on YouTube. I know that worked the first time, but we're going to do it our way. We're going to have screenings. So we're going to invite the press to come watch your movie exclusively. And you say, okay, sure, that's fine. So you set up a couple screenings in the major markets, Los Angeles, New York, Austin. The press gets to go see it. Mostly white people, because unfortunately the press isn't diversified enough right now. Not the press that matters, not the Hollywood Reporter, not the New York Times, not the New Yorker, not the Paris Review, not the Los Angeles Times. They're not that diverse yet, so there's mostly white people. So they come to these places and they sit in your movie and they watch and they say, huh. Some like it. Some appreciate it. But nobody loves it like a dream deferred. Then you turn to Lionsgate, Lionsgate turns to you. They give you the thumbs up, but they look a little scared. They didn't. They they giving you a different look than they gave you than they gave you during a dream deferred. It's not the same look of wow, we love what you're doing. It's now uh. So then they come to you and they say, "I think we should only distribute it on Hulu." How does that sound? Just to test out the waters. Just to test out the waters, nothing crazy. You say, oh, okay, sure. You put it on Hulu, more, more people see it. You go check on the IMDb, the scores are a little low. You think, well, what's happening? Oh, don't worry about it. These are just the first few reviewers, the first few viewers. That's what Lionsgate is telling you. Then you ask, when is it coming to theaters? When are we going to distribute it inside of theaters? Then Lionsgate says, we're going to work on a deal with Netflix. And then once we get this through Netflix, we can probably put it in a couple of theaters, a same day release as Netflix, if you don't mind. Okay, sure. Select theaters, select theaters, they say. They put it in a couple theaters here and there. Premieres on Netflix the same day. But your movie isn't in the top one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten on Netflix. It's buried. It's 
buried somewhere deep in the algorithm. You can't, you have to search it to find it. Your mom doesn't even know what came out. Your brother doesn't even know what came out. Your cousins don't know. You have to tell them like, hey, my movie's on Netflix. You're like, huh? You're like, yeah, my movie is on Netflix. They say, okay. They watch it and they say, it's great. More people need to see it. You ask them, can you tweet about it? They tweet about it. It doesn't change much, but they tweet about it. Oscar season comes around. Lionsgate does not put your movie up for any consideration. They don't. Just didn't get the same amount of traction as a dream deferred. Your vision just didn't come alive like a dream deferred. They're a little skeptical. They're like, huh? You and Black Star Productions, like, we're still up. 80 mil. We have 80 million to tell these stories. Like, we have 80 mil. So let's just tell another story. Tell another story. And another one. Mind you, you just lost money on the mountain. You lost money on the mountain of your production deal because in your production deal Lionsgate wasn't paying for marketing and promo that deal only was distribution that money came out of your pocket and Lionsgate they own the keys to distribution so though you put money in marketing doesn't matter if you can't get it in the theater you can market it as much as you want you can tell people go stream go watch on Netflix but How is it going to be put on Netflix? That's the distribution's job. How is it going to get put in theaters? That's the distribution job. So you can put up billboards. You can put up a billboard in New York City, a billboard in Colorado, a billboard in Ohio. But if it's not in the theater in Ohio, then... What do you do? But this little thing goes on. Until Black Star Productions resources are depleted. You're 10 years in. You were once the hot name in Hollywood. You got that Oscar. Everybody was losing their minds about your creative vision of the creative vision of Black Star Productions. Losing their minds. Lionsgate already found a couple of other companies just like you. They they found Sankofa Productions. They found Black Girl Magic Productions. They found It's a Small World Productions. They found Latinas Organized Productions. They found they found a plethora of production companies. Black Star Productions was not a unicorn. It was a blade of grass. It was a blade of grass. You can find one, pluck it. It'll be greener than some. It'll be yellower than others. But it's a blade of grass. You go out there, you pluck it, you go. And once that grass dries, you put it back in the lawn. And pluck another one, and another one, and another one. And Lionsgate stays Lionsgate. Warner stays Warner. So then, let's look. What, do I, what am I saying with this story? What am I saying? Now, that is the incredibly glamorous version of how this can go. I kept it very uh, safe, very sanitized. That story does not happen for anybody. 
you're not going to get a $50 million deal out the gate with your production company. You're not going to go viral out the gate. You're not going to be Oscar nominated off of a short. No matter how good the short is, the chances of your first thing getting Oscar nominated is very slim. And translate this across any field. Any field. It's because if money is your end result and you're going at it through the vector of brand. Now, mind you, certain people, if you approach life through the vector of ideas and creativity, you will always win. Always. But if you approach life through the vector of money, capitalism, wealth, you will lose. Because we're trained to think brand. You're trained to think Black Star Productions. You're not trained to think, how about I get with a team and we build a camera? How about I construct an entire team? I do the research. I find what people love and don't like about red cameras or black magic cameras or Polaroid or Sony. I see what people love and don't like, and I talk with the best experts, and we build a camera. And then we use that camera to shoot our first film. And then not only is my first film made, my first film is made with cameras that my production company, my technology company has made. How about that? And then my production company and my technology company ends up getting the boon of, hey, I heard you built a camera. Yeah, it's a 8K camera. It's the same camera that the NBA uses courtside. Really? Yeah, we use it for films now. Yeah, okay. Can you? Can we try that? Sure. I'll, I'll lend you out my camera for free. You lend out that camera. And then the ball gets to rolling. So not only are you building the brand, you are integrating yourself in the infrastructure. Integrating yourself in the infrastructure. Integrating yourself in the infrastructure, people. That's the difference. That's the true difference. And the ethnic component, the racial component, underlies everything. I don't know if I said this on this podcast or if I said this in my personal life, but race isn't a problem anymore because you can make money off of it. Race stopped race and racism stopped being a problem a long time ago. Because in order for something to be a problem, there has to be a solution. If there's no solution, then it's not a problem. Race stopped being a problem once capitalism got involved. Those days are over. Where we scratch our heads and think, how do we solve this race issue? No, capitalism thinks they solved it by throwing money at it. Amazon thinks they solved it by putting up black businesses, black owned businesses on their search explore page. Hollywood thinks they solved it by telling more black stories like passing directed by a white woman. Look deeper. Look deeper. I want to read you guys this current sutra that I'm on within my practice, and it's on the Four Noble Truths. And I meditate on this 
yesterday and I'm going to meditate on this tonight. So I want to pass this along for you guys. For those of you who don't know, the Four Noble Truths are the essential, one of the essential tenets of Buddhism. Along with the Four Noble Truths, there's the Eightfold Path. And so I'm going to start by saying, the Buddha said, And I discovered that profound truth, so difficult to perceive, difficult to understand, tranquilizing and sublime, which is not to be gained by mere reasoning and is visible only to the wise. The world, however, is given to pleasure, delighted with pleasure, enchanted with pleasure. Truly, such beings will hardly understand the law of conditionality, the dependent origination of everything. Yet there are beings whose eyes are only a little covered with dust. They will understand the truth. What now is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering. Decay is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair are suffering. Not to get what one desires is suffering. In short, the five groups of existence are suffering. What now is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is craving, which gives rise to the fresh rebirth and bound up with pleasure and lust. Now here, now there, finds ever fresh delight. But where does this craving arise and take root? Whatever in the world there are delightful and pleasurable things, there this craving rises and takes root. Ear, eye, nose, tongue, body, and mind are delightful and pleasurable. There is this craving. It arises. It takes root. Visual objects, sounds, smells, tastes, bodily impressions, and minds are delightful and pleasurable. There this craving arises and takes root. Consciousness, sense impression, feeling born of sense impression, perception, will, craving, thinking, and reflection are delightful and pleasurable. There this craving arises and takes root. What now is the noble truth of the extinction of suffering? It is the complete fading away an extinction of this craving, its forsaking, an abandonment, liberation, and attachment from it, the extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion, this, indeed, is called nirvana. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and not more remains to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so, neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired, nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. One is steadfast in mind. Gained is deliverance. And one who has considered all contrast of this earth and is no more disturbed by anything whatever in the world, the peaceful one, freed from rage, from sorrow, and from longing, has long passed beyond birth and decay. This I call neither arising nor passing away, neither standing still nor being born nor dying, there is neither foothold nor development nor any basis. This is the end of suffering. Hence, the purpose of the holy life does not consist in inquiring alms, honor, or fame, nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance of the heart, that indeed is the object of the holy life. That is its essence. That is its goal. What now is the noble truth of the path that leads to the extinction of suffering? 
to give oneself up to indulgence in sensual pleasure, the base, common, vulgar, unholy, unprofitable, or to give oneself up to self-mortification, the pain, unholy, unprofitable, both these two extremes, the perfect one has avoided and has discovered the middle path, which makes one both see and know, which leads to peace, to discernment, to nirvana. It is a noble eightfold path, the way that leads to the extinction of suffering, namely, number one, right understanding, number two, right thought, number three, right speech, number four, right action, number five, right livelihood, number six, right effort, number seven, right mindfulness, number eight, right concentration. This is the middle path which the perfect one has discovered, which makes one both see and know, which leads to peace, to discernment, to enlightenment. Ladies and gentlemen, you are life in the human form. You are the universe becoming extremely conscious of itself. My name is Rice Toluca, and I'll be talking to you guys very soon. I love you. I could tell you, he could show you. God in heaven shining on you. Through your message, now I know you. Come to you empty, free of my pride. Shining